Big thank you to Mike, our technical director, who did that uh, spoken word for us. I appreciate that. And really excited that you're here today on fall kickoff. Anyone excited that kids ministry is back? Yeah, there's a few people that are excited about that. Some more than others. I get that. Uh, but really thankful for that. And on fall kickoff, after this second service, we're going to have an opportunity to eat some lunch. And you may want to watch the Vikings beat the Packers or you beat the Packers, or you may want to, not that I'm pointing anyone out, or, or you may want to play games with the kids, whatever you want to do, it's going to be a good time that we're going to have uh, after this service today. And we get to start a new sermon series entitled Speak Life. And you guys, I, I'd like you to pray with me as we enter into this sermon series, would you? Father, I'm so thankful for this morning and the opportunity to worship you. Uh, to even play silly games that remind us of that ultimate truth of our, our series verse, that life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who care for it will eat of its fruits. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be working in us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Is there anyone in the room who is old enough to remember August 6th, 1945? Right? August 6th, 1945. Okay, I, I see a couple of hands in sarcasm. Maybe there's a couple who remember that particular day. On that day at 7.15 a.m., right, Japanese early warning radar detected that there were American bombers headed towards southern Japan. Immediately, the Japanese military issued an, a warning an alert went out over every radio station in southern Japan. Sirens began to blare as there was an alert in every city in the southern part of Japan. By 8 a.m., a radar operator in Hiroshima determined that the number of American aircraft headed towards southern Japan was in fact quite small. No more than three, they thought. And because they couldn't imagine that three aircraft would do much damage, they canceled the warning and canceled the alert in order to save resources. At 8.15, one of those three American aircraft, the Enola Gay, dropped the bomb Little Boy upon Hiroshima. Interestingly enough, the bomb probably would have been headed towards Kyoto, Japan, except the American Secretary of War, a man named Henry Stinson, had honeymooned in Kyoto and appreciated it as a city. And so he redirected that bomb towards Hiroshima. And what devastation came about as a part of that? The mushroom cloud from the bomb reached 11 miles into the sky. 70% of the buildings in Hiroshima were destroyed. 80,000 people died immediately, and 60,000 more would die in the months to come. And all of that happened from what? The splitting of a nucleus of an atom. A atoms aren't very big. If you pluck one of your hairs, this is more realistic for some than for others, Right? But if you pluck one of your hairs, oh wow, I actually got one. Right? You probably can't see it, it's tiny. But it would take a million carbon atoms to equal the width of that hair. Right? Atoms are tiny. 
and yet their impact can be so immense. Properly harnessed, the atom has the power to power an entire city or to level it. It's tiny, but it can do tremendous good or tremendous harm. And the Bible says there's something else that's small that has the ability to do tremendous good or tremendous harm. Right? It's our tongue. The Bible says that while our tongue is relatively small, the words that we speak have an enormous impact for good or for harm. Our memory verse says that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And we acknowledge there's a great big difference between God's way of using our words and the world's way of using our words. And it seems like there is no better time than right now. In the midst of COVID and unrest and an election coming up and all of the different opinions that people have and everything that people want to say about different items in our, in our society, no better time for us to spend some time discussing how does God want us to use our words? How can we use our words in ways that are obedient and pleasing to him? And we're going to start by talking about how important the Bible says our words are from one of the most famous passages about words in the Bible, James chapter 3. We're going to look at James chapter 3, verses 2 through 12, and so you can turn there in your Bibles or click there in your devices. And here at Friendship Church, we believe the Bible is the living, active Word of God. And so we're going to read this passage. Follow along as I read our passage for this morning. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There are different lessons that I would like us to look at about the tongue that we see in this passage, four in particular that I would like to bring out this morning. And the first one is one we already saw with the opening illustration, and it is this. The tongue is small, but it has a huge impact. There's three illustrations in this passage in James about small things that can have a big impact. The first is a bit. Who in here has ever ridden a horse? Anyone? Okay, it looks like actually a majority of people in here have ridden a horse at some point in their life. 
They are powerful and majestic animals, aren't they? A horse can run a quarter mile in 25 seconds. You set 500 pounds on top of a horse and its breathing pattern doesn't even change. If you set 500 pounds on top of me, what happens? Right? I, I collapse to the ground never to get back up again. But it doesn't even impact a horse's breathing when you do that. They are so strong. And yet, if you take a tiny bit and put it up against the gums of that giant animal, attach it to a bridle and reins, a 10-year-old who knows what they're doing can turn that horse wherever they want. It's, it's so small, but it has such a big impact. The second illustration he uses is a rudder. Compared to the ship, a rudder is small. And yet, disable the rudder, and how useful is the ship? It is the rudder that steers the ship where it is to go. Small, but big impact. The third illustration he uses is a spark, a little bit of flame. It's so small, and yet, it can do such tremendous good or harm. It was October 8th of 1871, also a date I don't personally remember, when Mrs. O'Leary's famous cow kicked over the lantern that she was using to milk the cows before the sun came up. Two days later, the fire was still raging in Chicago. 17,000 buildings were destroyed. 250 people lost their life because of that little fire in a lantern that got kicked over. It's small, but it can have such a great big impact. And God wants us to know that our words are the same. Our tongue is so small, but our words have such an enormous impact. They can have a great big impact for good. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Proverbs 16, 24, gracious words are like a what? A honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Words can encourage us and bring us closer to God, can't they? I, I experienced this recently on a day where I would had a couple of discouraging things go on. You've had those days where you have a couple of discouraging things go on, and instead of walking like this as you go through the day, pretty soon you're kind of walking like this. And one of you sent me a note, an email of encouragement. It was just what I needed at just the right time. And God used it in my life to say, yes, Matt, keep going. Because our words can be good, sweet. They can build others up and encourage them towards God. But on the other side, our words can have a huge impact for evil. Proverbs twelve eighteen. there's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 15, 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. There are actually words that we can speak that harm others' insides. They're like sword thrusts to the soul, and they damage the inside of us. I was reading an account this week by a middle-aged black man who talked about his experience growing up in an almost exclusively white community. And he writes this about the power of words. It's interesting how often people are dismissive of the power of words. Oh, oh they didn't mean it is frequently said to explain hurtful words. As a child, I was brought up by white foster parents. 
in an area that was almost exclusively white. As the only black kid, I got a lot of abuse from other children and adults regularly being called racial names. When I complained to my foster parents, one of their favorite sayings was, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. Even as a child, I thought, what a ridiculous thing to say. I was hurt. I was terribly hurt. And over 40 years later, I still feel slightly sick when someone reminds me of those times. The Bible completely disagrees with the idea that our words are incapable of hurting others. As a matter of fact, it says quite the opposite. That if we speak the wrong kind of words, sinful and evil words, they can do damage to the soul of another person. That's why God encourages us to speak words of life, not death. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The word for corrupting here literally means to tear away little chunks. And the idea is we can speak words that actually tear away at another person's soul, at the core of who they are. And God says, don't ever speak those kinds of words. Instead, speak the words that build up, that actually add to that inner person, that add to a person's soul. Speak words of grace, speak words of humility, speak words of love, words of truth, words of the gospel. It's when we speak words like that that we're speaking the words that God intends for us to speak as his people. And so the first thing that we see in this passage is that although our tongue is small, it has a great big impact. And because of that, that brings us to the second point that we see in this passage, which is this. We are to choose our words carefully. Because our words have such a large impact, we are to choose our words very carefully. James chapter 3, verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. Good theology right there. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. That verse says that the battle is so intense and so significant for our tongue and our words that if we're able to exercise self-control in that area, then we're able to exercise self-control in every area of our life. That's how big the battle is over our words and over our tongue. And ultimately, God's desire is that we would have a bridle on our mouths, that there would be self-control in what we say. But we're to be careful with our words. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this verse and the one that follows it in a minute. But for right now, I just want you to understand that Jesus doesn't want us speaking words that are careless as his people. He wants us speaking words in a way that is what? Careful. Right? Not careless, but careful with the things that we say. Thoughtful and wise in the words that we use. Which is precisely why God encourages his people to be a people who are quick to hear. Quick to listen, to actively listen to others. And very slow to speak. James 1.19, such a great verse for 
uh, me to memorize in my life. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. What does God call us to as his people? We are to be quick to listen, quick to hear, but we are to be slow to speak. And who is this command for? It's for those who are introverts, isn't it? It's for those who are shy. No, it is for every person who is a brother or sister in Christ. God wants us to be a people who are quick and active listeners to others and who are slow to speak in our life. Can we acknowledge that the world values something very different than that? That we live in a world that values the ability to rant, the ability to speak my mind and make sure that everybody knows what I think about everything in the world, the ability to go online and post thing after thing to tell you what I think about everything that's going on in the world. And Jesus says, oh, but my people, my people are to be quick to listen and quick to hear and so very slow to speak. Earlier, Joel was up here and he referenced uh, a man who wrote a hymn that one of our songs was based on named Charles Wesley. Well, Charles had a more famous brother named John Wesley, who was an evangelist in the 18th century here in the U.S. And John Wesley once had a man approach him after he was done speaking. And the man very proudly said to Wesley, My talent is to speak my mind. To which Wesley responded, I'm quite sure that's one talent God would encourage you to bury in the ground. Now you've got to have a little understanding of Jesus' parable of the talents to get the Bible humor that Wesley's using there. But let's acknowledge that our world values our ability to speak quickly, to speak loudly, to shout over the top of other people. And God values a people who will be quick to listen quick to hear, and slow to speak. Part of the reason that we are to be slow to speak is because it allows us to be careful and to consider the words that we're going to say. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19 says, When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. It isn't that we're not supposed to speak ever. Right? I, I don't want to see you next week here with duct tape over your mouths. I wouldn't see it anyway, would I, for many of you? But we are to be careful and consider the things that we are to say. When my kids were little, maybe six, seven, eight years old, we bought them a 500-gallon pool to go in the backyard. And it had a filter that looked like this. In the first surface, I referred to it as a 50-gallon pool, right? Fish tanks are 50 gallons. Uh, I'm not sure I could get my son, even at age six, into a 50-gallon fish tank, right? It was a 500-gallon pool, like eight feet across and about this high. And it had one of these filters that was filtering the pool at all times. And the filter worked pretty well. Six, seven, and eight-year-olds jumping in and out of the pool. There was grass, there was dirt, and the filter kept it fairly clean. But what would happen if I took this filter intended for that 500-gallon pool and I hooked it up to an Olympic-sized pool as the only filter for that Olympic-sized pool? It, It would be absolutely overwhelmed 
that's far too much water for the filter to filter. The less water, the easier it is for the filter to do its job. And the same thing is true of our words. The less words that we speak, the easier it is for the filter that God has given us to do its job. Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous does what? Ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. But God calls us as his people to be people who think, who ponder, who filter, who prayerfully respond and enter into conversations. And so I encourage us as God's people to practice something that I call holy hesitation. It sounds a little bit like I'm trying out for 1967 Batman TV show, right? Holy hesitation, Batman! Right? What is holy hesitation? Holy, oh, I'm throwing things. Holy hesitation is that brief moment that we take before we speak, before we enter into a conversation where we evaluate if what we're going to say is really worth saying. Is it true? Is it loving? Is it kind? Is it gentle? Is it something that God would have me to say? That holy hesitation is so important. It is the righteous who ponder before they give an answer. And so we are called as people to choose our words carefully. Are our words important? Absolutely. So we choose them carefully. But the passage also indicates that our words are important because they indicate the state of our heart. Our words represent our transformed hearts as believers. Whatever the state of our heart is, transformed or not, our words represent the state of our heart. And so James says in the final few verses there, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. There were apparently people in James' day, this is going to be shocking, but they would come to church and they would praise God and they would say all of the Christian things. And then they would go to their jobs throughout the work week and their language was filled with complaint, grumbling gossip, slander. And James says that this shouldn't be so. All of those illustrations he uses about a fig tree bearing olives or a freshwater spring producing salt water, they're all meant to indicate a genuinely transformed heart by the Spirit of God won't then use its words to tear other people down. It won't use its words to tear other people down. Because our words are an accurate reflection of the state of our heart. And if our heart has been transformed by God, then our words will be transformed by God. That's why Jesus says in Luke 6, verse 45, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Here and in Matthew 12, Jesus wants us to understand that our words are an accurate reflection of the state of our heart. 
And so if we have been changed by God, our words will be changed. If the Spirit of God lives within us, our words are going to reflect those fruit that he produces in us, and our words are going to be loving and kind, gentle, patient, and good. A couple of chapters before James chapter 3, James says in chapter 1 verse 26 that if a person thinks they have a transformed heart, but their words are not transformed, then their heart isn't really transformed. He, He says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's possible for us to store up all kinds of theological knowledge or for us to go through all of the rituals we're told to go through, to come to church each and every week. But James says, if our tongues aren't transformed by the power of God, then our hearts haven't been transformed by the power of God. And we are deceived. A tight rein on our tongue, our tongue being used for God's purposes. I mentioned earlier John Wesley, that evangelist from the 18th century. He one time was speaking in a church, and within that church, there was a woman that everyone in the town knew had a critical and mean-spirited tongue. As a matter of fact, Wesley said, not only did this woman who attended this particular church, not only was her reputation for a critical and mean-spirited tongue widespread in the town, but widespread throughout the area. And as Wesley was preaching that day, he saw this critical and mean-spirited woman looking somewhere below his face as he was speaking. And as soon as he was done preaching and the service ended, the woman that he knew to be critical, someone whose language was always filled with grumbling, approached him and said, Mr. Wesley, the strings on your bow tie are much too long. It is an offense to me. He asked if anyone near him had a scissors. And there was a woman there who happened to have a small scissors in her purse. And she handed Wesley the scissors. Sure, I have one. And he gave the scissors to the critical woman and told her to clip his tie to her liking. She cut the tie much closer to the collar. Wesley asked her, are you sure that's better now? To which she responded, yes, that is much better. Then Wesley asked her, well then, may I have those shears for a moment? Since you felt so free to share your concerns and criticism with me, I'm sure you wouldn't mind if I offered a piece of correction myself, Wesley said. I must tell you, madam, your critical and judgmental tongue is an offense to me. Please stick it out, for I would like to trim it. Right, The woman's critical and mean-spirited tongue was evidence that her heart had not been transformed by God. Which is precisely why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What does Jesus say here? He says that on the day of judgment, our words will be measured. 
And based upon the words that we speak, we will be declared justified by God or we will be declared condemned. Why is that? It is because our words are such a perfect representation of what is in our heart that God can accurately judge the state of our heart based on the state of our words. Right? Our words are such an accurate reflection of our heart that God is able to judge the state of our heart based on the state of our words and determine our eternal destiny based on that. Have our mouths really become loving in a way that reflects the new heart that we've been given, that loves God and loves others above all else in life? Our words represent our redeemed hearts. Are they important? You better believe it. Right? God says you'll be judged based upon the words that you speak. Which brings us to our final and most important point. Only God can transform our words. Only God can give us self-control when it comes to our words. Look at that middle part of our passage. It's uh, an intimidating portion of the passage. It says, And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, a reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Every kind of wild creature can be tamed, he says. I have seen horses trained to dance. I have seen killer, whe- killer whales trained to shoot hoops at SeaWorld. I've seen lions, the king of the jungle, trained to jump through hoops at the circus. I have even seen junior high boys trained to put the seat down when they're done going, right? All kinds of wild beasts can be trained, James says. But there is no human being who can tame the tongue. There is no man who can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil set on fire by hell. Then what hope is there? If there is no human being that can tame the tongue, what hope is there? This seems very defeatist. You have no ability to make your tongue an instrument of hope, of goodness, of truth, of love. You have no ability to do that. But that doesn't mean that no one has the ability to do that. I love the way that 4th century church father Augustine puts it as he responded to this passage. He said, he does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no man can tame the tongue. So that when it is tamed, we confess that it is brought about by the help and grace of God. It is impossible through human effort in order to tame our tongue, to put a bridle upon it and make it an instrument of love, of truth, of the gospel, of goodness. But God can tame our tongue because God can transform our hearts. And after all, it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so if we want our words to be transformed, 
If we want them to reflect the goodness, the love, the compassion, the grace, the humility of the kingdom of God, the answer is not to work really hard at changing our language. The answer is not to hook up little electrodes to my tongue and shock myself every time I say something I don't want to. Instead, the answer lies in a transformed heart. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if we want our words to be more and more like Christ, then we do so by coming to God, seeking to abide in relationship with him, spending greater and greater time with him, drawing close to him. And as he transforms our heart, our words change. That's what we seek as a people. Greater and greater maturity in our hearts. Greater and greater intimacy between us and our God, knowing that in that, he'll transform the words that come out of our mouth. Can we pray towards that end together? Father, we recognize that it is out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, that we may be able to fool some people about the kinds of words that we use for certain periods of time. Uh, That we may be like those people in James who are able to pull out words that are Christian, words that are of God when we're around certain types of people. But ultimately, as we look at our weeks, we can see the genuine state of our heart in the words that we use. And as we look at that and as we experience that conviction this morning, we pray that we would draw close to you, recognizing that transformation of the heart happens by being in your spirit by being with you, by drawing close to you. And as we do that, we look forward to you working in and through our tongues to bring life to others, to speak goodness into the lives of others, to speak grace into the lives of others, to speak truth and the gospel into the lives of others. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit's power to be at work in us as a church family. In Jesus' name, amen.